So let me say hello and welcome to episode 30 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Bobonis. My guest today is barrister, law lecturer, and board director, Sophie York, who joins us to discuss the importance of religious freedom as the foundation for all of our freedoms. Sophie York, how are you? Oh, feeling great, Salvatore. It's such an honor to be here speaking with you. Oh, it's, it's much more an honor to have you on the show. And I hear you want to make a few shout outs to some friends who are watching. Salvatore, before we go into it, can I give a big shout out for the lovely people at Excelsior, Campion, Notre Dame, Sydney, and of course, to Paul and my boys. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. You better be watching now that you got your plug <laughs> out there. Uh, Sophie, you've written that, quote, religion is an essential part of the experience of being human and always has been. Now, do you really mean that? Is religion so much at our, well, <laughs> forgive me, in our souls? Yeah, look, Salvatore, if I can sort of start with the basic principles, humans are physical, they're intellectual, but they're also spiritual. So that's that's so integral to what we are as people. And we know from our studies of humankind, and in fact, we still have some of the earliest legal codes from um the Code of Namu, uh, 21 BC, 2100 BC, the Code of Hammurabi, 1754 BC. We know from even these earliest legal codes are still in existence that they had a concept, they had an understanding of the fact that humans were had this concept of bodily integrity that ought not to be interfered with and that they had human life, which was sacred and deserved protection by the rulers and so forth. So we actually even have records now, anthropological records, which support this understanding. And of course, those early legal codes were well informed by ancient religions. So whether it was, you know, the Mosaic Code or whatever, they, mm -hmm. they drew from those codes their understanding about the importance of human life and to be fully human, to think, to speak, to move, to associate with others, to procreate and, and have a conscience and so forth. So, yeah, there's no no question there. And, of course, obviously over time we've seen it, you know, acknowledged in Magna Carta of 1215 and the later renditions, 1225, 1297, it's in the Parliament House of Canberra. So, one of the first things that Magna Carta acknowledged was that churches should be free and that people should have religious liberty. And we we draw heavily from Magna Carta. You know, we even mm. have put the right to a jury trial and so forth. And that's based on the fact that you can't have your liberty to move around taken from you without mm -hmm. someone alerting you to what you're being charged with and you having the right to defend it. It's all based mm. on this concept of you being a free, autonomous independent human being. So it's been in, in the world, across the world, the understanding since time immemorial. So there's there's no question there. It's, it's whether or not people actually know their history, I guess, or even understand that concept. So, you know, that's... Well, let, me, well, let me challenge you on that a bit, because from my... From, wait, what I know about uh, Magna Carta and some of these earlier codes is that the only people who could write were the priests. And so, of course, if you get a priest to write your law code, uh, you're going to have a law that <laughs> enshrines religion in some sense. There you go. There's your Magna Carta. Um, but how much is, how much, I mean, I'm just kidding there, of course. But you've, you've got to, 
Sure, fair cop. And um, can I just say this? I think you'll find it was more the the barons who didn't want to pay tax <laughs> who got it written. They were they were very cross at this, you know, arbitrary increasing of tax all the time. So it wasn't um, it wasn't drafted by church leaders. It was put together, and and in fact, the ruling King John of the day met with the barons at Runnymede in a flat field with no bushes. They they were so sort of wary of each other. They didn't want to be attacked. And it really um, arguably came about because they they thought that if there was this taxation, there should be representation. They should have a say in how their own money was spent and it shouldn't just be increased um, ad nauseum and until they were living as paupers. So it was sort of setting the terms of what we um, now understand as a form of constitutional monarchy and as time has gone on, we've developed the democracy. And, of course, Australia is a constitutional monarchy which, which um, has a democracy that operates within that structure. So, But this was, that, that document didn't create the rights and it wasn't, uh, um, it wasn't produced by a church to dictate anything. It was actually sort of yielded up by the populace, um, by representatives who are willing to take on the fight but not create those rights, acknowledge those rights. Does that make sense? So really just put them into writing and, and clerks wrote them and they sent copies to all the corners of um, England and, and, and you know, it was um, very extraordinary what they encapsulated there. Wonderful, actually. And we've, we've got an, a copy of the 1297 version in our country, so it's uh, wonderful. Well, you've, you've pulled out your Magna Carta and your Australian Constitution, but let me respond with the United States Constitution, which, of course, the, when the Constitution was passed, the Bill of Rights was demanded by the people, not by the elite. The Bill of Rights was demanded by the people, and the first right they demanded in the Bill of Rights was Article 1, Congress shall make no law establishing a religion or prohibiting the free exercise of religion. Now, we in the United States are very aware that religious freedom is the foundation of all of our freedoms. It's right there in print in the Constitution. How does that play out in the common law countries of you know, the United Kingdom and Australia? I mean, how do you guys feel about freedom of religion and how it's related to the rest of your freedoms? Uh, well, I'm so glad you've asked. I don't remember this being actually specifically on the list of questions, but <laughs> I, I reserve the right. I reserve I the right. So glad to ask because um, it's a bit of a favourite topic, in fact. And if you go to section 116 of the Constitution, you'll see our Constitution now. You'll see that it has a fourfold. Um, it has four limbs to it. And if you look at um, limb number three. It, it doesn't allow the parliament to make a law which actually um, restricts um, religion. So we in Australia actually have the luxury, if you like, and it is a bit different to the American constitution on this. We acknowledge the importance of religious freedom. In fact, we say that it's so important and so inalienable and unassailable and, and wide-ranging that we don't even trust the parliament of representatives to make a law which could only narrow it. Does that make sense? So our third limb of Section 116 of our Constitution won't even allow the narrowing. I mean, the good thing in Australia is that we can, the government does this as well, it, we can partner with um, churches and hospitals and schools and so forth as long as there's a public interest. We have that freedom. I, I believe it's more um, restricted in the US Constitution. So so it, it actually works well what we've got. We're not... We're not um, trammeling that all-important 
um, human right. I mean, it's the most basic human right. If you if you are not allowed to believe what you want, to have the product of your own mind and heart, then really you're not fully human. You know, let me do my own shout outs for a moment here. We have our, our regular viewers out there. Christopher, thank you for watching. Anthony, uh, Cassie, Graham, Linda, Winston, good to see everyone out there watching. We will get to your questions in just a few minutes. If you want to start putting questions in the chat box, we'll get to them in about 10 minutes. But Sophie, I want to ask you first, if that's true, I mean, if religion is so foundational to, well, to the foundation of Australia, why is religious liberty such a controversial idea in this country? Why aren't people simply cherishing freedom of religion in Australia? Right. Okay, well, it, this has as much to do with our education system as it does um, to do with our history. So we have this wonderful history where um, we, we obviously the Indigenous people who were here had their own beliefs. They had the dream time, the rainbow serpent, the sacred sites, so forth and so forth. Um, Governor Arthur Phillip actually claimed Australia in accordance with the rules, international norms at the time, claimed sovereignty for Britain. And the first thing he did when he stepped ashore was to take the Bible and open it and, and take an oath on it. He thought that a country that could only be successful and prosperous if it operated under God's laws. And very importantly, and this again goes back to our basic human rights, he declared that there would be no slavery. Now, when you think about the enormity of that, that was 1788, Salvatore. That was before William Wilberforce's big win in 1833 that, that abolished slavery across the empire, the British Empire. So, so we are talking a guy who was really ahead of his time, quite revolutionary, but it set an incredible tone for Australia that every single person had their individual dignity recognised. And even when he was attacked himself, he was speared, he ordered there be no retaliation. So he actually set the tone for how Australia was going to be. And it's so important in my view, well, it was continued by Governor Lachlan Macquarie. Uh, Arthur Phillip was a good Navy man. Lachlan Macquarie was army. And mm -hmm. um, and Lachlan Macquarie carried that on and so did his wife, Elizabeth Macquarie, and so did people like Caroline Chisholm. Just extraordinary. But um, the, the point I was getting to is this. They set a tone, but what the, we are being taught in education now, what the um, school children and even some of the unis are teaching, is that these people were shameless and horrible and, and, and um, were, you know, um, only interested in attacking the natives um, that... Mm -hmm at the time and so forth. Now, that is actually a travesty that they are defaming these early pioneers in Australia. Every single building they, they constructed had to be done by the sweat of their brow and the cutting of the rocks and they had to plant food and so forth. And it was a very, very tough existence. And, of course, they had disease and, um, you know, all the, the, the heat was incredible and, and finding water and just... The life then was so tough that I, I do encourage people to read the life of Caroline Chisholm. My lovely sister Mel gave it to me, and it's just an extraordinary account. But anyway, getting back to you. Well, Grant, well, but, but Grant, I mean, let me push on this a little, because granted, <laughs> no, Grant, granted that colonial history or, or early settlement history is often misrepresented in history classrooms. Uh, I'm going to grant that fully, but I mean, as an American here, seeing, for example, the glee with which people jumped on Cardinal Pell during the trial and then the complete lack of remorse when he was found innocent. I mean, there's 
I was really shocked at the desire among so many intellectuals in Australia simply to bring down someone because he was religious or for that matter, the criticism of Scott Morrison for going to church, <laughs> which just seems the most natural thing in the world to me. Like, why is there so much hostility towards religion, especially among intellectuals in Australia? Salvatore, can I, can I um, address that? I, I understand the point you're making. There does seem to be hostility amongst a certain set who, because they sensationalise, they tend to dominate the airwaves. But if you actually travel around Australia, every country town you go to, there's churches there. People have their funerals at churches. People christen their babies. People sometimes marry in churches. There's a, 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 we have our public holidays, Good Friday, Easter, Christmas. There's a real underlying um, definite culture. We we are also a forgiving, laid-back country. I mean, that's just part of our national tray, our, um, well, our trays, I would have thought. And I think that that is actually what matters. And just getting on to the Pell example that you've given, I, I hear what you're saying, but, but there are many people who may not have been close to Pell who were watching all that and felt deeply uncomfortable about it. They saw that the burden of proof, which is meant to be beyond reasonable doubt, if um, you know, the prosecution is is charging you with something. They saw that the burden had been shifted to the accused and it was set at this ridiculously high standard of, well, it's not impossible. I mean, that's that's just most people, I would say, in Australia felt uncomfortable about what was happening there and, and relieved that our, the highest court of our land actually rectified that. So even if they didn't like him, they still thought that the man deserved a fair go before our courts. And I think that that is actually the Australian way. I think that the everyday Australian actually does treasure religion in, in their own way. They have It permeates their life. I, I think the mistake would be to assess Australians on what percentage is church going because um, Australians, well, yes, they are laid back and they manifest their faith in different ways to perhaps, you know, um, some Europeans or Middle Easterners or whatever, you know, different countries have different cultural traits and the way they express things. But but we definitely like people to be honest and kind and loving and forgiving right. and those those trays really come from our founding foundations, which were, of course, Judeo-Christianity that right. was set, that tone was set from the get-go. And, and in fact, now many Indigenous people have converted to Christianity mm -hmm. um, as a result of um, what, what they've observed about it, right. the great, the, the beauty that it brings to a culture. And, and this is not across the world. There are some countries which have major problems with corruption and um, and, and telling of untruths and bribery and even a mercilessness. I mean, in our law, for example, our mm -hmm. talk that's based on the concept of the Good Samaritan, and I know in America they're conscious of that as well, the duty that you owe to someone that could foreseeably be injured by your act, and our contract law assumes a fair go as well, equal bargaining power and, and fair play and reasonableness, and, and of course, our criminal law that we've just, right. just been discussing. I mean, crime and sentencing in Australia definitely incorporates the qualities of mercy, forgiveness, redemption. I mean, these are very Christian-based concepts. So well, it's all there. It's there. Well, yeah. I, well certainly, uh, look, I, I'm not going to argue that it's there, but, but let me pull you back to something you talked about at the beginning of that, the tone of debate in Australia. I think we can both agree that the 
that the rate of religious observance, the number of people who go to church or synagogue or mosque or temple or some institution once a week has declined dramatically in Australia over the last 50 years. At the same time, society seems less respectful than ever. Do you think there's a connection there? Look, um, I <laughs> to prepare for this, I did have a look at the census stats um, over the last 10 years. And interestingly, the um, percentage who are going to identify themselves as having a religion has dropped um, between, well, I looked at um, 06 to 2016, the, the last census to compare. And, and I found that um, fascinating. And also, in particular, the um, percentage who identify themselves as Christian um, has dropped as well. I think it's now... Um, around the 50% mark, but um, I'd, I'd need to pull up the census. Sure, this isn't a data show, but yeah, I know. yeah, yeah. <laughs> And um, I'd love to commit all the findings. It was so fascinating um, drilling down into it. But, but interestingly, the percentage of people who are still church going in that 10 years, so even those who may not reveal to the government in a census that they hold some right. religion, the percentage, which is around 15 to 17%, in that decade has remained stable. Now, that's very fascinating. So it's not dropping. If anything, it went up a percentage. So right. um, it tells me that some people, for whatever reason, they might think, oh, it's none of the government's, none of the government's business to right. ask about my private faith, or, or they might have come from a country. We have migrants who have fled oppressive regimes and they're not willing to share that sort of information with a government well, authority they don't know how it could be used against them so so there's multiple reasons for that yes well so, but I, I'm, I'm going to take for granted that, that 15 or 20 percent is pretty low what, what, what i'm asking is is that a problem right is that is that what's responsible for the breakdown of civil debate and our inability it seems to be respectful in public in australian society Look, Salvatore, you're right. There is no doubt there has been an impact on respect for um, religion generally. That is a sad thing in my view, but it may just be a phase that we're going through. I'm, I, I am an optimist and I think that um, if you look at the history of the world, I mean, you look at the Roman Empire where they were busy um, initially um, stoning Christians and shooting them full of arrows and all sorts of things like that. And by the as time went on, the emperor... Um, converted to Christianity due to the influence of his lovely mother and they came up with the Edict of Milan in 313 and 313 AD and that actually meant people had to respect Christians, restore their properties, right. stop persecuting them, stop killing them. They actually needed that law and, you know, that empire then went from strength to strength. It was one of the biggest, greatest empires of humankind, a thousand years, and the Roman Empire affected the entire world. Everything from art to architecture, roads, engineering. There's even a Monty Python skit about, you know, but whatever else did they do for us? But they they really were quite an extraordinary empire. So, yes, I hear what you're saying, and it may be that we are due for, um, sadly, um, legislative protection. I know they're looking at that in New South Wales right now. Um, the Anti-Discrimination Act currently protects all sorts of categories from disability to age, um, sexual orientation, but it, it omits this sort of glaring omission of um, religious freedom, religious liberty. And I do understand that once upon a time we probably didn't need it because there was such an intrinsic mm -hmm. respect for it. People could look around and, you know, they see that, you know, St Vincent de Paul and, and um, you know, these suburbs and train stations and the nuns and brothers, Mary MacKillop, who 
established 117 schools across Australia, educated the poor and working class of Australia. I mean, we are still reaping the harvest of those early schools that Mary and her nuns, the um, Joey sisters, set up, and all those nuns and priests and brothers who were the unpaid workforce, and they educated Australia. I mean, that we we have such a phenomenal harvest from what was sown then. And, and one of the things it also did was it, it sowed the seed of volunteerism. Australia, they've, they've actually assessed, there's studies you can read on this, they've assessed the value of our culture, which is very into volunteerism. And that's, that's giving of yourself for no pay. And they believe it's worth $290 billion every mm-hmm. year. Now, we are one of the wealthiest countries in the world. That value, that not all countries have that in their culture, that's definitely has right. been inculcated over time. So, so yes, I do hear what you're saying, and it may be that um, partly through ignorance or partly through, you know, antipathy for whatever reason, people sometimes their politics um, overtakes them and they um, mm-hmm. probably lose respect for other people and, and how they carry out that is, um, you know, in um, faith, faith bashing. And, and, look, there have been um, some scandals over the years which haven't helped this um, a percentage of wrongdoers in any outfit, any outfit sure, sure. Um, deals with children, and that's across the board. There's you know, everything sure, from life. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, so so that hasn't helped that there's been that yeah. saturation coverage of that um, tiny percentage of wrongdoers. So um, all that feeds into it. But but people, I think, you know, they love the fact that we have these wonderful hospitals and schools and, and um, oh. you know, colleges, Christian colleges, right. campuses. You know, outfits like that. People, people are. I think, I think Australians are delighted mm-hmm. that we have the culture that we have. I mean, overseas visitors comment on it. They find us. <laughs> we all, 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 all of us, all of us really love Australia. Uh, <laughs> so look, can I just one last sure. point. When, when there is um, a belief um, in God or in a higher force, a creator, there's a certain humility that goes with that and I think that makes people endearing and when people discard it or are rude or dismissive that brings a certain arrogance and I like to think the Australians actually do have that innate humility which is very endearing but anyway that's it's because they acknowledge that there's a higher force than themselves that they're not the source of all you know quality and, and creation. Well, there's, there's certainly a higher force than me, and that force is YouTube. Uh, I, I would, so I would like to ask everyone to please like this video if you are liking it. Hey, if you don't like the video, dislike it. It's engagement that matters on YouTube, and we'd like to make sure that more people have a chance to see Sophie's comments. The more people interact with the video, and that means likes, dislikes, making your comments in the comment section, the more people will see this video. Of course, we'd also love you to subscribe to the YouTube channel here at the Center for Independent Studies. That will allow, again, uh, you and other people to see more of our videos. I'd also like to ask for your money. I would love to have you join the Center for Independent Studies if you're not already a member. Joining starts at $40 for a basic membership, and that'll get you pretty much everything you need. But if you do want to join at the $250 level, instead of something you need, you can get something you want. (laughs) Liberty and Liberalism, personally signed by me, the first work of classical liberalism published in Australia. This is a reprint done by the Center for Independent Studies. If you upgrade to that higher membership status, if you're already a member, I'll still send you a copy of Liberty and Liberalism. If you do so in response to this show, just let them know 
in the comments when you uh, when you donate. We would love to have your support. Remember, there's a coronavirus on. Donations are way down for everything. Give to your religious institution that you attend. I'd say put that first. Uh, put us second. We'd really love to get uh, your support. We are the Center for Independent Studies, meaning that we don't take any government money. Uh, we don't take sponsored research for specific purposes. We only rely on donations from people like you. Uh, Sophie, thanks for letting for sitting through my uh, crass materialism there. Uh, I do have questions. <laughs> hey, I, I'm American. Can I uh, add to it? Look, um, my experience of the CIS has always been very positive. I love the fact that you're not afraid of debate. You even get the tough subjects and you flesh them out and, and it is independent. And and the papers that you produce, and I've got that book, by the way, I haven't read it yet, but I'm, I'm very excited about it, so thank you. But the papers that you produce are so trustworthy and reliable. It's wonderful because you can really... Um, we all sort of need resources when we're making an argument. Helen Alvarez, um, she's American actually, she um, did the Hobby Lobby case, um, she said, be the best in the room. If you want to make an argument, be the best in the room. And, and Alan Jones, of course, says do the homework. And it, it's hard to have the time to do all the research. So the CIS provides, they, they, they have their hardworking team do all the hard work, the legwork, the research. <laughs> and that to me is so valuable. I cannot tell you. Well, thank you for the plug. Much appreciated. Thank you, Sophie. Look, Christopher has a question for you. As people become increasingly divorced from traditional religious and moral values, is there a growing risk of a quasi-voluntary totalitarianism that we fall into a sort of totalitarianism here in Australia? Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, um, if we get on to the um, China topic at some point, Salvatore, I, I do, do hope... do that right up. now if you want. This All right. Is... Well, okay. Um, I'm going to address it this way. We in Australia, um, my, my impression is that generally Australians haven't really suffered for their beliefs. And it's been... Um, we've lived such a free existence that we're sort of um, allowing at the moment the encroachment of a major power in the world, the People's Republic of China. And, and we're so good natured that we're actually letting it happen before our eyes. They're taking over, you know, the Port of Darwin, Port of Newcastle, Port of Melbourne, um, cementing over reefs in our region, um, you know, our major waterway. A lot of our two-thirds of our exports go past there. It's worth a fortune to us. Whoever, whoever controls that waterway really has a sort of Damocles over our whole country. But if you look at that government that is expanding its control, and I just read this morning in the paper that they um, have hacked our parliament and that they are doing all sorts of cyber activity that's not, not in our interests. I mean, um, you know, they're meant to be a trading partner. Perhaps we need to revise that language. Partner is a very intimate word and it mm. brings a lot of cachet of trust. So I think um, I hear what um, Christopher's question is, and I think the biggest danger to our freedom is partly the political correctness that's within that is making people constrained. They feel that they can't discuss things. Um, we certainly saw that in the marriage debate. People were threatened and intimidated and, and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. It was quite unpleasant. Even a beer company was boycotted. I mean, it really was quite extraordinary. They were just having a, a couple of MPs having a debate with a beer there, and then the beer company cancelled its run of the 200th anniversary of the Bible Society. It they were meant to make beer cans with lovely Bible verses on them, but they felt too afraid they did what only really? 
be described as a hostage video where they said, oh, you know, <laughs> we support, um, you know, gay marriage. I mean, it was really horrible that 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 time. And and it really made me realise that whatever we'd had up until date, to date where people were allowing space for each other's views during the marriage debate, I saw that there was definitely a politically correct group that right. were not countenance other people expressing their views, even though those views might be based on thousands of years of humankind and also, you know, based on advice from the Son of God. So, you know, about love and forgiveness and um, and so forth. So, um, yeah, so anyway, so my view is that the totalitarian um, shift has been a little bit accelerated by this current pandemic. I mean, the reason we're doing this on Skype is because there's been a, a novel coronavirus that escaped right. from a lab in Wuhan in China and um, and the initial cases were um, uh, genomically linked to that lab. So very serious times that we're in. But the, the big issue about the pandemic is what it has caused. It has weakened the world health-wise, wealth-wise, mm -hmm. and a consciousness of freedom. That, to me, is one of the most significant shifts if you, if you watch everything, don't forget I am a legal philosopher, so I do look at um, underlying philosophies and trajectories. So that's what I'm most conscious of because once you give up that mentality of uh, I'm a free, autonomous, independent human and I have my own human rights, the ability to think and speak and move freely, and once you give that up, it's very hard to get it back. It's usually only one back with bloodshed. I'm not saying that to be dramatic, but if you look at the history of humankind, um, and especially, I mean, they know this in the Eastern Bloc, the people who won their freedom there, I mean, Polish people, Hungarian people, it was very, very tough for them to win back their freedom. So, um, so Christopher's point is well made. I think totalitarianism can come in a number of different forms. Orwell pointed out that usually there's a false banner. So they call, you know, um, um, love is called hate, freedom, slavery, mm -hmm. all those sorts of things. And we're taught serve, at the moment Serve that, the people. Yeah, <laughs> right. we're at the moment that, um, that safety is more important than freedom. And, of course, we know the quote from Benjamin Franklin that if you sacrifice um, essential freedoms for temporary safety, you don't deserve either and you'll end up with neither. So that's a very important point. So I think the, the only recommendation I can make is that when we see this, um, where people are being, um, you know, made to feel uncomfortable at work, I mean, the most right. prominent case was our genius um, rugby union player. I mean, he was taken off the field, Israel Folau, and, and it was really he put a, a, a post in response mm -hmm. to his employer putting out a view on, on marriage that he could not agree with. So he had to put it. He felt in, in conscience he had to put it. And you, you saw the public really support him. Australians love their freedom and they also don't want authority outfits, their boss, for example, in this case it was Rugby Australia, to dictate to them what views they're allowed to have. And he put a, a respectful post that was um, in response to what his well, um, employer was declaring on behalf I of all players. Uh -huh. I'm sure Christopher will appreciate that very full response. We're going to have to now, we're going to have to cut down the response a bit because we have a ton of questions to get to. Sorry, so I'm, sorry. I'm going to ask you to put your barrister's hat on uh, if you never took it off. Uh, we have a question from Winton. Sophie, do you think it's important to distinguish between natural rights and the kinds of rights specifi specified in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? 
um, distinguish between the natural, natural rights and, and the HR. Yeah, okay, yeah. So, so can I just make this point? You have naturally occurring human rights. Whether they ever end up acknowledged in a document is neither here nor there. How wonderful, in my view, that they have been acknowledged over the years. So um, we mentioned Magna Carta and the earliest legal codes, but the Universal Declaration of Human Rights it's, it's, has a special status, if you like. Um, the many, well, all the countries across the world recognise that it's right. now part of customary international law. And in it, it does acknowledge that we have these important human rights, the right to have a conscience and the right to found a family and, and so forth, and the right to be at liberty and not to be locked up arbitrarily and all those things. So whether or not it's written in a document, Magna Carta, you name it, that doesn't change the fact that you have this. Whether or not your government takes rights off mm. you, they are just your representatives and sometimes they secure the role of governing to themselves and don't give you a choice about it or they are one-party state or whatever, but that doesn't mean that you don't have those naturally occurring human rights. And there's, there's more written about this. Cicero wrote about this. Aristotle's written about this. Augustine of Hippo has written about this. In fact, if you want to um, delve down, and Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, but if you want to delve down into it, have a look at the works of Augustine of Hippo because just extraordinary. And his, he coined the term just war. And that is based on the fact that people shouldn't just be killed randomly because you have the right to be alive. And that doesn't change just because nations are fighting. Mm -hmm. It has to be a good reason to go mm -hmm. to war. But anyway, have a look at and, him. So Anthony wants to bring us back to the present. He's asking, <laughs> since, well, it's, it's, history is a big place. Uh, since some cultures do not accept religious freedom and even jury systems may be compromised, is it possible that multiculturalism could be incompatible with a free society? So people have a different understanding of what the word multicultural means. In my view, Australia has its own culture, but within wow. it we have different races, we have you know people coming from different countries, but we have an Australian culture, and in it we absorb you know people from different cultural backgrounds, but we have our own culture, and it's very beautiful. Part of that culture is actually that relishing in the different cultures of, of people from different backgrounds. That's, right. that's actually part of the Australian culture. We're not trying to be homogenous, but I tend to not use the words, word multicultural because I feel that that divides people into silos and it's sort of bagging and tagging. I'm not really into all the bagging and tagging that's going on at the moment and deciding that people have to be treated in different ways depending on how they rank in that bagging and tagging. And I just think that that really gets away from the starting point, which is that we each are a human being. We need to treat each other with respect and love and forgiveness if we need to and so forth. So so um, I acknowledge that having um, a multi-ethnic society or, or um, polyethnic, however you want to describe it, having this beautiful melting pot has enriched our country beyond compare. We are so lucky in Australia. And, and our, our culture of people um, not going berserk when someone makes a point they disagree right. with, you know, thinking about it, that's that's a beautiful thing. In some countries that'll get you killed or put in mm. jail for blasphemy or or stabbed or, you know, bombed or whatever. Right. So that's so, a, an important part of our right. culture. Yeah. Graham suggests that when active participation in church life fades, all that remains is a kind of cultural Christianity. And he's curious what you think, does cultural Christianity have its own value to Australian society today? Um, 
It's a good question because whenever you stop replenishing from the source, there is a, a, a risk that you will um, dehydrate or, or it will dry up. So if you look at anything in life, the source of life from it is replenishment. So when you look at what churches offer, they you know read the gospel reading, they have a faith leader often well-versed in theology that will explain it and, and give examples. It's so important for people to sort of have that replenishment, that spiritual replenishment. And also, if you're a Christian, you'll remember at the Last Supper, Jesus said, you know, break bread, break wine, do this in memory of me, getting people together, do this in memory of me. That was a specific request. So it's, it's you know, something that we do um, in the um, uh, Catholic um, tradition and the Christian tradition is very much to do that. And, of course, there are many other faiths that bring people together and they rejuvenate because it's very hard to keep all the readings, if you're people of the book, all the readings in your head and also to have all the depth of understanding. Not everyone does a PhD in theology, for example, so it's so lovely to have this on offer. And there is a risk that if you never replenish that eventually it will dissipate and you won't have that that wonderful nourishment. It's a form of nourishment. So getting back to the first point, we are physical, intellectual and spiritual and physically, I mean, would we stop eating or would we stop, you know, um, intellectually, would we stop reading or stop absorbing new information? For some reason, people think that spiritually we can just um, no longer. I, I do acknowledge you can get spiritual nourishment from not just going to church, though. There are plenty mm -hmm. of ways of doing that. I mean, there's nothing to stop you praying wherever you are and right. reading the gospel wherever you are. So so that's true. But, but um, the idea of gathering people together to um, break bread is and um, and to actually do do that in memory of um, yeah. Jesus is um, a very significant thing. It's right. not something to just well eat. a lot of a lot yeah. of people may not realize our very word companionship means to break bread with people. Um, Linda has a comment for us. The volunteer industry, and she puts in quotation marks, is huge in Australia. It's blessed with many talented, willing people, distinctly more than other countries. Sophie, your insights into how it developed are much appreciated. Also, you have a thanks from George to Sophie. Uh, Mara has a comment that I'm going to turn into a question. If active participation of, the, of church life fades, uh, is it possible that people are preaching from the pulpit a kind of politically correct gospel and thus diluting it entirely? Look, um, I'm so glad. Sorry, who, who asked that question? This is Mara, but she's put, put it as a uh, comment. I'm turning I'm it into so a question. Delighted, Mara. I'm so glad you asked that question. Look, only yesterday I was reading this letter that um, about 200 young Australians have written to a conference of bishops, a synod of bishops, and, and they really were asking, I uh, skim read it, I had lots of homework, um, but I, I was very encouraged in it that they are seeking leadership, seeking clarity. They they don't want the politically correct, woke view of the world. They actually want to know the doctrinal truths and also have them transmitted with confidence and and belief that's visceral, that they can pick up on and and relish in and pass on to others and, and so forth. So um, it would be a sad thing, and I know that um, some faith leaders want to not ruffle any feathers, don't want to offend people, but we need to actually perhaps 
reorientate our consciousness and think that having a point of view or a belief that's different to someone else's is not of itself offensive. Um, it's John Milbank who wrote about that in his Ontology of Peace. He said that's actually how you have a peaceful, flourishing society. You allow space for each other. You mm. are, and, and how enriching is it to have people with different views? So faith leaders should be out and proud, for want of a, a better term, and, um, <laughs> and, and should just think um, this is what we believe and, and they'll gather together. They will, they will attract people like a magnet because they believe it and there's nothing more infectious. That's why, you know, starting with this little band of 12 followers, Christianity spread across the world because Paul believed it, Francis Xavier believed it. They, they travelled and Matteo Ricci went into China. I mean, the cathedral he built yeah. in Beijing in 1600s is uh -huh. still there now. These no. people travelled under terrible conditions to spread what they believed in. Mm. There wasn't political correctness going on. They could have been <laughs> drop the hat. And, and many of them and many of them were. And many of them were. Look, uh, yeah. we're supposed to be wrapping up, but I have two final questions that I need to squeeze in just because our viewers have been so good to contribute them. Uh, the first, George asks, Linda seconds it. Can Sophie say something, this is his word, briefly, about the limits of... <laughs> <laughs> about the limits of religious freedom. Um, the limits. Okay. Well, what we, as you know, in the law, we do have, you know, a Crimes Act. So if your religion, for example, asked you to, you know, slay other people, well, that, of course, you're, that's denying other people their human rights. You have your natural human rights to the extent that they abut other people. So, of course, if you had a belief, and, and also if you were part of an outfit that did not allow other people or people within it to change their minds. Part of freedom of mm. belief is that you can change your mind at any point. So if the if the belief or system that you're in will not allow that, then then it 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 um, actually defies the definition of religion. Mm. Because part of religion is freely believing and being mm. able to change and and so forth. So um, yes, there would need to be limits because each individual is entitled to their own human rights right. and to not have them. Um, trammeled upon by others. Does that and make have, sense? That makes yeah. a lot of sense. We have a final okay. question from Graham, and we're going to have to wrap up after this question. But Graham says, American scholar Henry Van Til wrote more than 60 years ago that culture is just the outward expression of inward religious beliefs. Do you agree? Yes. That's um, that's actually beautiful, that, that quote. I mean, I'm just looking around um, when you see beautiful art and architecture and poetry and and literature that's been produced over thousands of years, um, and it's it's driven by faith, it's almost um, a manifestation, and that ends up being such a part of the culture. You can see it. You can. It's encoded in that that product of human creativity and and so forth. And conversely, when the culture becomes rotten or shallow or aggressive. Or transactional, you start seeing um, art and architecture that's repugnant and not uplifting, and and sometimes perverted and um, shallow and meaningless, and and not not rich and beautiful right. and uplifting. So you definitely see it reflects. It's a two-way reflection, actually. Mm -hmm. It's quite extraordinary. I mean, you look at how the world wept when Notre Dame was on fire. They realised that something right. magnificent was possibly being destroyed anyway. Fortunately, it wasn't, but, but that's... Um, mm. 
Well, Sophie, thank you for uplifting us up today. Very much appreciated. Oh, Salvatore, it's been such a joy. And thank you to all your audience. And, and thank you for your wonderful questions and for bringing me on this exceptional oh, show. We'll Keep going, to, Salvatore. We'll have to do it again soon. Thank you very much. Our Thanks. producer today was Emily Holmes, executive producer Max Hawk Weaver. The director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. And you can join us next week when Tom will be handicapping the American elections. Join us next Thursday. We hope you see us then. Thanks, Salvatore. Thanks, M. Max and Tom.